KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzet Torah. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program. Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parashat Tzav. Yudalad Ad Arbet, Purim Samach. And the Erev Shabbat program is Lilui Nishmat Shlomo Yosef and Chaim Shmuel. And I am your host, Jonathan Snowbell. Well, to all of the listeners who are listening on the right day, on Arab Shabbat. It is an Arab Shabbat program. Purim Sameach. And at this point you are listening on the way to Shul to hear the Megillah, on the way back from Shul after hearing the Megillah, at your Purim Suda, perhaps. All of you have already had a little to drink. In any case, Purim Sameach and enjoy. Al-Kholpanim, this is a very unique Purim year, as those of you who are familiar with what goes on in Eretz Yisrael, in the places that are Mukaf Chalami Mot Yoshua Binun, the places that had that were walled from the time of Yoshua Binun, and more specifically uh, Yerushalayim, uh, is most well known for this. We have what is called Purim Mishulash, a very special year where we have Purim Mishulash, a three-day holiday of Purim. How does it work out to be three days? Well, the Megillah cannot be read on Shabbat. Why can the Megillah not be read on Shabbat? The Megillah cannot be read on Shabbat because since all Jews are obligated in reading the Megillah, but not all Jews can read the Megillah for themselves. We're afraid that someone's going to take their Megillah and walk out in a Rashut Rabim, in a place where there's no Eruv, or in a Rashut Rabim, in a place where there can't be an Eruv, and they'll carry their Megillah in order to be Mekayim Mitzvah, and they'll be transgressing a Torah prohibition by carrying in a public domain on Shabbat. Therefore, Chachamim did not allow for the fulfillment of reading the Megillah on Shabbat. So too, they did not allow the blowing of the shofar on Shabbat and Rosh Hashanah, and so too they did not allow the taking of the Arba Minim, the Lulav and Etrog, on Sukkot when it falls out on Shabbat. <coughs> that being the case, the people of Yerushalayim cannot read the Megillah on Tet Vavadar, which is the day they should be reading the Megillah. So what comes up, and this mostly comes up out of the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Talmud Bavli wasn't so interested in this issue, since it wasn't relevant in Bavel, that the halacha is as follows. The people of Yerushalayim will read the Megillah on Yudalad Adar, on Friday, or that would be Thursday night and Friday morning, just like those of us outside of Yerushalayim, the Prazot. We read the Megillah on Yudalad every year. Likewise, Matanot Levyonim is given on Yudalad. And that is because there's a strong connection between Mikra Megillah and Matanot Levyonim. The Aniim wait the whole year for Mikra Megillah, and therefore, once there's Mikra Megillah, we give Matanot Levyonim. And then we come to Shabbat. So on Shabbat in Yerushalayim, they'll say Al-Anisim, because on Tedvav is Purim. And Purim is the day to say Al-Anisim. And then on Sunday, and this is a very interesting halakha, because now Sunday is already pushing us off into the 16th of Adar, 
the people in Yerushalayim will be mekayim the final two mitzvot, Seudat Purim and Mishloach Manot. Now, one might ask themselves, why wouldn't the Seudat Purim be fulfilled on Shabbat? Right, we're having a Seudat Shabbat in any case, so what would be the problem then to have Seudat Purim as one of the Seudat Shabbat? We have Yom Tov on Shabbat, and we have a Seudat Yom Tov, which is also a Seudat Shabbat. Why shouldn't the Sudat Burim be fulfilled on Shabbat as well? I believe the answer to this question is that since the mitzvah of Mishloch Manot is connected to the mitzvah of Sudat Purim, we are supposed to send, not like the prevalent minhag today of sending chocolate and junk and more chocolate and more junk for Mishloch Manot, but rather real food, which is appropriate for the Sudat, so, if we're sending food, that means we're carrying from one person's house to the next. Again, something that's inappropriate on Shabbat in a place with no Eruv, or in a place which has a Rashut HaRabim Doraita. So therefore, since we can't have Mishloch Manot on Shabbat, we can't have the Suda on Shabbat, because the two mitzvot are intertwined with each other, and therefore, we get to Purim Mishulash, some of the mitzvot are done on Friday, some of the, the Qumim of Purim are done on Shabbat, and some of them are done on Sunday. Purim Mishulash, a three-day Purim, then for the people of Yerushalayim. And this indeed is our third Arab Shabbat program, which we have dedicated to the topic of Purim in that spirit. However, <coughs> those of us living in those places outside of Yerushalayim, the Prazot, not in walled city areas, we have a unique Purim as well. And that is that Purim falls out on Friday. <coughs> now the problem with Purim falling out on Friday is that it leaves us with a problem. Because usually people have their Purim Suda sometime in the late afternoon, uh, the, the, in the halacha, it writes very clearly, we shouldn't have it, you know, five minutes before sunset, but it should be a good couple of hours before the end of the day. But nonetheless, it's a couple of hours before the end of the day, and it often will spill over into the night, which is fine on a regular year. However, this year, it's Friday night. The end of the suda will be going into Friday night, and that's already Shabbat, and Shabbat we have to ha- has to have its own suda. So the prevalent minhag then is to have Purim Su'uda when Purim falls out on Friday in the morning. By the way, just as an aside, this is the third time in the last eight or seven years that we've had the situation of Purim Mishulash in Yerushalayim and Purim on Friday outside of Yerushalayim, which, by the way, coincides also with Erev Pesach falling out on Shabbat. And I don't know the specific number, because I've heard anywhere from 15 to 24 years, and I have to admit that I haven't looked into a perennial calendar. But the next time that this happens, assuming that we continue with the calendar of Hill HaKatan, uh, which maybe is not a safe assumption, hopefully maybe it's not a safe assumption, then this is going to happen in a long, long time. So we should cherish this moment and understand its significance. 
because those of us who are parents might be grandparents, and those of us who are grandparents might be great-grandparents, and those of us who are kids might be parents by the next time that this special occurrence takes place. In any case, the prevalent practice on Purim that falls out on Friday is to have Sudat Purim in the morning. And then Purim is a little bit rushed. This wonderful day that's only one time in the in a year, and that the song says, Why isn't Purim twice a week? It's not. It's once once a year. And this wonderful day that is Purim, that is only once a year, is somehow cut down because the Purim Seuda is clearly the climax of Purim. And if we're finishing our Purim Seuda by 12, 1 o'clock in the morning... 12 o'clock and 1 o'clock in the afternoon, pardon me. Then from then on in, some of us are sleeping and passing over whatever state of drunkenness one might have entered. Others are cleaning up vigorously from the Purim Suda in order to prepare for Shabbat. In any case, Purim is over. And we've taken out several crucial hours out of our Purim celebration because of the situation that we made our suda in the morning as a result of Arab Shabbat. However, there is a custom based on a sugiya at the beginning of our Veb Sachim, a sugiya that many beginner Talmud students learn in their youth about having a suda on Arab Shabbat, and whether it's allowed to have a suda on Arab Shabbat, and how one operates if one has a suda on Arab Shabbat. This is a, ma- a famous machoka between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yossi, whether you're allowed to eat on Arab Shabbat or not. And the halakha is that clearly there is an issue to try to avoid having a suda on Arab Shabbat, certainly in the afternoon. However, <coughs> there is a sensitivity in the halakha to the fact that some suudot are unavoidable on Arab Shabbat. If one has a brit bilah on Arab Shabbat, can't push it off, and therefore it has to happen on Erev Shabbat. And likewise, if one has Purim on Erev Shabbat, well, we can't push off the Suda to a different day, and we have it on Erev Shabbat. Now, who says, though, that we should do it in the afternoon and not in the morning? Well, this is exactly what the Gemara is discussing, is about the permissibility of eating in the afternoon. And what does happen, one, what does one do if one indeed eats in the afternoon? So we paskin like Rabbi Yossi that it is permissible to eat on Arab Shabbat in the afternoon. Perhaps not preferable, but permissible. Now we have to weigh in the other factors. Let's say, granted, that I wouldn't have a Purim, I wouldn't have a Su'uda on Arab Shabbat in the afternoon any other time. But I have a reason here. I have a specific interest here, and that is, it's Purim. And I want to take Purim for all it's worth, and I don't want to cut Purim short. It's once a year. And I'm going to have my Purim Suda in the afternoon. Perhaps I'll start it a little bit earlier. Maybe there's a halakha. Maybe the halakha demands that we start the Purim Suda if we're going to do it in the afternoon from nine hours and a little bit earlier than that. That is to say, if we're talking about a 12-hour day from sunrise to sunset, assuming that sunset's at Sunrise is at 6 o'clock a.m. and sunset is at 6 p.m., for argument's sake, then I would try to start my Seuda no later than 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
and Purim Sudas as they are, as we said, will will go into the night. And now, I'm eating my Purim Suda, and now I've come to, and Shabbat enters. Now what do I do? So according to Rabbi Yehuda, I stop my Purim Suda and finish. That's it. I stop my Purim Suda, I bench, and now I go into Shabbat. But according to Rabbi Yossi, I don't even stop my Purim Suda, I keep on going. The Gemara, however, brings, and this is the conclusion Lahalcha, is that we are Pores Mapau Mekadesh. What does that mean? That means, to a certain extent, we stall our Purim Suda. We do not bench. We do not need to even daven now, Myrav. But we rather, we clear off the table, put out a new tablecloth, and we make Kiddush, and we take out Lecha Mishnah, because now it's Shabbat. So in its essence, we continue eating with a pause for um, Kiddush and Hamotzi. Now here, two uh, interesting halacha questions arise, and that is, assuming that it's a Purim suit and I've had a drink of wine during this Purim suit, I've already said Borei Priyagefen. So now when I make Kiddush, do I say Borei Priyagefen again? And likewise, it's a Purim suit I've presumably washed, and now I come, as the continuation of my meal into Shabbat, do I say Hamotzi? So regarding the first question, there is a general agreement that for Kiddush, we say Kiddush, but without saying Borei Priyagefen. We take a, uh, a goblet of wine, we take a Kiddush cup, and we fill it up with wine, and we say, And instead of saying, We go straight into the bracha of the Kiddush. And we finish, And drink the wine, without a Borei Priyagafen. Very nice. Then we go continue into Hamotzi. Now again, here, presumably, like in any other meal, unless we've dirtied ourselves, uh, we don't need to wash. We've already washed at the beginning of the meal. And now we come to Hamotzi. Here, indeed, there's two opinions in the Shulchan Aruch about whether we have to make Hamotzi or not, and I won't get into the details right now. However, the Mishnah Bruah says that because there is a Machloket, and we... And every machloket regarding brachot, we say safek brachot lehakel, and we refrain from making a bracha when there's a machloket. So here, what we do, we take lecha mishneh, and we cut it up, and we give it out. We give out the bread without making a bracha again. So there's no hamotzi, but there is lecha mishneh. Finally, at this point, maybe or maybe a little bit earlier, it's appropriate to uh, to sing Kabbalat Shabbat. Certainly not in a formal way. Kabbalat Shabbat is not a formal tefillah in any case. So singing Kabbalat Shabbat, continuing the meal until the meal is over, and then benching. And then in benching, we would have a, an issue as whether we can say we would say Ritzay or Alanisim. And here too, though, some of us try to avoid this problem when Shabbat goes into Rosh Chodesh, and then we have a question: Do we say Ritzay or Yalev Yavo? Here too based on Amiiri, the general practice is that this was both a Sudat Purim and a Sudat Shabbat. And we can say both Alanisim and Ritzei, all the more so that, of course, it's also Shushan Purim, where in Yerushalayim they clearly are saying Alanisim as well. 
this is Parisma Pal Makadesh. This is what my family does, and in our family we also have a fairly large suda, so that after the suda is over and we bench, we can now get together ten men and Davin Meyer with a minion. Um, it's a very memorable experience. It's a very meaningful experience to have the Sudat Purim going into Shabbat. And we'll make a couple more comments about this after we hear what Rav Tavori has to say. We have been devoting a few minutes every Friday to discuss a Godal whose yard site falls in this week. Today, Yudalid Adar, I'd like to do a little different topic because the person, the guttle that I chose this week is not actually his yard site this week, but in a sense we do commemorate his yard site today. And of course I'm referring to Haman. The guttle of the week that we will discuss today is Haman. You will ask me, was Haman really a guttle? And of course, the answer is clear in the Megillah. It says, Gidal HaMelech Achashverosh et Haman. King Achashverosh made Haman Gadol. Now what does Gadol mean? Gadol could be a physical concept. A friend of mine once told me that Reb Chaim Shmulevitz said to him that he'll be a Gadol when he was a child. So the bracha has to come true some way. So my friend was very tall. He said he didn't become a big Tamit Chacham, but he became a Gadol. So now Achashverosh made Haman into a Gadol. But we know Haman wasn't big. It says he was Ish Tsar. Ish Tsar means small, thin. So if Haman wasn't a Gadol physically, he must have been a Gadol spiritually. Gidal HaMelech Achashverosh, King Achashverosh, proclaimed Haman as a Gadol. But of course you're going to ask me, since when does King Achashverosh decide who was the Gadol? After all, who was King Achashverosh? HaMelech Achashverosh is depicted in Chazal as being a Melech Tipesh, a foolish king. What does he, what connection does he have to appoint Haman as a Gadol? And here also, we have seen in our history, not once, not twice, there were Tipshim, who decided who were the Gedolim of their generation. Achashverosh could certainly be included as one of the Tipshim, and he proclaimed he was a Gadol. Again, I can anticipate many people's arguments who think that this is not the correct way to make a Gadol. This is not the way to declare a Gadol. How could I possibly suggest that Haman was a Gadol because of Achashverosh? And to be honest, I'm rather in a dilemma about it because I'm confused. I heard once that there was a book to explain this concept completely. The name of the book was Making of a Gadol. And there I would be able to find out what really do you need to make a Gadol? Who makes a Gadol? What is a Gadol? The only trouble is when that book came out, immediately it was denounced, put into Cherem, and therefore, I have no way of knowing what really makes a gadol. So, I can only interpret the psukim as I understand them. Gidal HaMelech HaChashverosh, the king HaChashverosh, proclaimed Haman 
as being a gadol. But in order to really determine what the character of Haman is and what he accomplished in his life, we have to look at the text of the Megillah, see what he did, and see if his kavanos, his intentions, are really l'shem shamayim. So, it's fairly obvious to me that we can make a strong case that Haman's goal in life was to make sure that Bnei Yisrael actually do tshuva. We know of cases where a person did an Avera l'shma. His purpose was only to fulfill mitzvahs of the Torah, whether it's on his behalf or on behalf of Am Yisrael. For example, Haman said, Yeshno amechad mefuzar mefarad bein ha'amim. There is a nation which is scattered among the other nations. And we generally understand this to mean that Haman was castigating the Jewish people that there was no unity among the Jewish people, and we talk a great deal about the unifying process of Purim. And in a way, there might be a simple understanding of that's what Haman intended to do. Haman meant to unify the Jewish people. And he complained about the fact that they were not unified, and he said, unfortunately, in times of tragedy, Bnei Yisrael become unified, and this is my accomplishment. Perhaps one could even suggest a different pshat. You see, those words that we translated, Yeshno Amechad Mefuzar Mefarad Amim, there is a nation, there is one nation who is scattered among the nations, actually presents a contradiction in terms. When we read the words, Yeshno Amechad, there is a nation, that implies there is one nation, Yeshno Amechad, there is one unified nation. But immediately it says, Mefuzar Mefarad, they're scattered and dispersed. So how can you say this one nation that's scattered and dispersed? I would suggest a very slight biblical emendation. And instead of saying, Yeshno Amechad, I would say, Yashnu Amechad. They went to sleep. B'nai Yisrael entered a dogmatic slumber. We're not excited about mitzvahs. We even remember the Medrash that tells us that before B'nai Yisrael received the Torah, they fell asleep. One of the reasons for staying up all night Shavuos is to commemorate the fact that B'nai Yisrael did not stay up all night before receiving the Torah. They went to sleep. They did not look forward to this exciting event. So, in the time of Achashverosh, we know also B'nai Yisrael had a certain coldness about them. They had no anticipation of mitzvahs. They had no excitement about mitzvahs. And Haman says, they're asleep. They're a sleepy nation. Yashnu amechad. It's true, maybe, they're sleeping, and therefore they've not been considered an amechad. And therefore Haman decided, I must do something to create a tshuva process. In terms of himself, Haman might have also understood that he personally has a problem. Because Haman, biologically, was Haman ben Amdasa HaAgagi. He was from the family of Agag, from the family of Amalek. Now, no matter what a kind of a gadol he is, no matter what kind of a tzaddik he is, Haman understood that the mishpacha, the family related to Amalek, the family related to Agag, must be killed, must be destroyed. 
there's a mitzvah. Now, it is true that the Rambam felt that a person from Amalek could do tshuva. And therefore, my suggestion would not work according to the Rambam. But who told you that Haman paskin like the Rambam? Haman might very well have paskin that Amalek, he could not do tshuva. And therefore, although he himself did tshuva, and although he himself was a tzaddik gomor, and there, therefore he was privileged to the fact that his grandchildren actually learned Torah in B'nai Brak. We have a famous tradition. It wouldn't be surprising when we see what goes on in B'nai Brak to assume that some of these students are grandchildren of, of, of Haman the Tzaddik. So Haman knew that he was from Agag. He knew he was an Amaleki. He also knew that, or at least he passed against the Ramah that he can't do tshuva, and therefore he had to die. Therefore he prepared the tree. You see, you think that he prepared the tree in order to kill Mordechai. But it says in the Megillah, Aloetz asher heichin lo. He prepared the tree for him. For whom? Chazal say that Aloetz asher heichin lo is Haman prepared it for himself. Chazal probably meant it in a different sense. But nevertheless, the same way Chazal said that Haman prepared the tree for himself, I could argue that Haman prepared the tree for himself in order to fulfill the mitzvah of Mechias HaMalek. And he wanted B'nai Yisrael to fulfill this mitzvah, so he entered on this plot in order to make sure that they would do tshuva properly, they would awake from their dogmatic slumber, and they would fulfill the mitzvah of Mechias HaMalek. Haman had many other motives in mind. Haman, we know that he looked for an appropriate month to plan his deed. And he chose the month of Adar. Why did he choose the month of Adar? So the Madrash explains, because Haman looked at the month of Adar and saw that it's a month that has no Jewish holiday. A month that just passes by. We have an almost every month we have some special day, or at least the day that you don't say Tachnon. And Haman, if you remember, did not know exactly the dates of Zayn Adar. He was a little confused about those dates. And he thought, or he held like the Misnagdim, that you say Tachnon in every single day of Adar. So he peel poor, he decided, I'm going to have a date, which will cause B'nai Israel to do tshuva on that day. And therefore, instead of his plot, he would knew that his plot would be upturned, overturned, and therefore B'nai Israel would have a party in the month of, of Adar. Not only did he chose Adar, because he wanted to make sure the Jewish people have a day of festivity in Adar, and that the, a day that they won't say Tachnun, but Haman did better than that. He chose the month of Adar because he knew that in many years there are two Adars, as in this year. And since there are two Adars, we get a double save from Tachnun. So he wanted to do for the Tovas Am Yisrael, for the better of the Jewish people. Look how happy they are. They don't say Tachnun in the month of Adar, the first month of, of, the, of the second Adar. We also see wonderful characteristics of Haman, as sometimes we can see opposed to Mordechai. Mordechai was given an edict by the king. Right? It says in the, in the Megillah very clearly that 
וכל עבדי המלך אשר בשער המלך קוראים ומשתחווים למן כי חן סבלו המלך. All the servants of the king bowed down, they prostrated themselves before Haman, because the king so decreed. Now, who is the king? It didn't say the king of Ahasuerus. Maybe this was a divine plan. And Mordechai, for some reason, and it doesn't say it all in the Megillah, why? Mordechai doesn't do what the plan is. Haman, on the other hand, you see that the moment that the king seems to change his mind, and the king said to Haman, Maher, when he told him to take the lavush, to take the proper clothes, the proper horse, and take Mordechai, and leave Mordechai, as if Mordechai is the king incarnate, and you are a servant, Haman is so respectful, such a man of Derech Eretz, that immediately, he does exactly what the king says. Now, we have another proof that Haman was a very great man, because the Gemara learns where is the source of Haman in the Torah. And the Gemara says, Haman ha'etz. When I first heard this pshat in America, when I was a little boy, and a rav taught, said to me, this is the source of Haman and the Torah, Amina Eitz, I began to laugh. And he told me, no, 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 I'm not up to the joke part yet. That really is what the Gemara says. Hamin Eitz, Haman is hinted at in the Torah. Now we know that Esther, for example, is hinted at in the Torah, Mordechai is hinted in the Torah, but Haman is also hinted in the Torah. And what does the Torah say about Haman? Haman is an eitz. He's a tree. We know that an eitz is a very positive thing. The miraglim were sent to see hayeshba eitz imayin. Do they have a tree? Do they have a tree? Was interpreted by Chazal to mean someone to protect them. Someone, as it were, to put his arms, his limbs, and protect people. The eitz is a man. Ha'adam eitz hasade. Hamin ha'etz means Haman was a very, very respected person. A person who had the capacity to protect his people like a tree. And therefore, Haman was really a gadol. And it's appropriate this week to mention the yard site of Haman. But I do know that we have many kashas in the Megillah about what I said. And I know that a lot of people are going to think read the Megillah and see many, many things are difficult. That might be true, but in general, I think we can learn through the event of art scrolls, we can learn through other modern times that we don't ask Kashas about Gedolim. Once we establish that someone is indeed a Gadol, everything else can be somehow revised, revisionist history is possible, uh, we'll, we can whitewash anything. So, I would suggest taking some of the more literal psukim of Megillah and, and building medrash about them and, and reinterpreting them, be, or just perhaps, perhaps we might even have to put a ban on those sections which somehow imply something about our true gadolim. Now, I hope that in the future we continue on Friday to learn a little bit about the life of the gadol, to try to assess his life,
And today, I'm not really sure if we did the exact right thing, because after all, it's not really the yard side of Haman this week, but perhaps we fulfilled a different halacha. Chazal tell us that we should be careful to reach a level in Purim that we did not differentiate between Arur Haman and Baruch Mordechai. Perhaps we reached that level today. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. So we've discussed the two options we have for Purim Suda this year. Having it in the morning is certainly the more classic, yeshivish approach, less problematic. But in my opinion, it lacks the adventure of Purim. It lacks lengthening our Purim and making and, and entering interesting halachic zones, which we rarely, rarely have the opportunity to go into. And this idea of Poresma Pao Mekadesh. And if I may add one idea of, uh, that I heard many years ago at the first time that I did this Poresma Pao Mekadesh, I believe it was Rabbi Riskin, that having the Purim Suda going into Shabbat leaves a flavor of eternity in the Purim Suda. It doesn't end. We didn't stop the Purim Suda, but we let it go into Shabbat. We gave it a special flavor. Purim is a unique day where we allow things that we don't allow the rest of the year, things that are not certainly not things that are prohibited, but things that are perhaps inappropriate, not done. And certainly on a day like Purim, we can allow ourselves to be a little bit more flexible to look at things and on a in a value system and less in a glaring halachic cold view. And therefore, my suggestion and my practice is to be Poresma Palmekadesh, to eat the Purim Suda in the afternoon, even on Friday, and have it go into Shabbat. It's a very special um, experience. One last uh, thought about the matter, and that is that if you didn't get to do it this year, so there is one other opportunity, of course, if Purim falls out on Thursday, then in Yerushalayim, Purim falls out on Friday. That would be in a year that Pesach falls out on a Shabbat, which is a possibility. You look into your Haggadahs and you'll see that there is a possibility of Pesach falling out on Shabbat, and that's why Yom HaShishi is printed into the Haggadah. So then all those years that Purim falls out on Thursday, so Shushan Purim in Yerushalayim falls out on Shabbat, and then once again, Parasma Pahu Mekadesh will come up again. So those of you who are worried that we have to wait another 15 or 20 or whatever number of years it is, it's much shorter than that. Come to Yerushalayim for Purim on the year that Shushan Purim falls out on Friday. And you will be able to be Mekayim the Halakha of Parasma Pahu Mekadesh. And with that, Shabbat Shalom and Purim Sameach.